I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, music nerds. Welcome back. Welcome to season four, episode number six. That means we've been locked down here for six weeks, and I've been bringing you this show on a weekly basis now, and I'll keep doing it until we get freed from our houses. Uh, It's been good, actually. Things are, it's totally weird here. You know, things are changing and shifting and Things that I didn't used to do, I'm doing all the time, and things that I used to do all the time, I don't do anymore, and it's weird, and I'm trying to adjust. And it's been great to hear from so many people. I've heard from people from all over the place in the last couple weeks, and it's good to know you're out there listening. It's good to know you're out there enjoying the show. People seem to really like this beginning part where we talk about stuff to do with music and the virus and how your lives are going and creative ideas and things like that. So we'll continue that. If you don't want to hear any of that business, you can skip ahead and jump straight to the interview. And this week I have an amazing Canadian songwriter and performer, Dave Bedini, from the band The Rio Statics. If you're Canadian, you know the band. If you're not Canadian, you may not know the band. But let me tell you, they're awesome and I'll tell you about them in a few minutes. Uh, If you don't want to be involved in this section, just jump ahead about 15 minutes and uh, you won't have to listen to me babble on and talk to some listeners, which I really enjoy. And apparently a lot of you do too. So we're going to do it. Uh, So this week has been pretty wild. I I started a a new venture with a couple of friends of mine, um, one guy in Vancouver and one guy in Toronto. That's Jeremy Holmes, uh, who's a bass player in Vancouver. I play with a bunch and Gary Craig, a wonderful drummer in Toronto. And we've been doing these remote recordings. It's called the Hen House Express. And 
people record their part of a song, vocal and guitar or keyboard or whatever. And then we sort of are like an all in-house thing where we share files and we give them back the song all tracked and mixed. And it's pretty cool and it's working out all right and people are enjoying it and we're enjoying it. And, you know, if nothing else, it keeps our studio chops alive and it's really kind of fun in a weird way. I've never worked like this ever in my life. I've done some remote sessions and I'm doing some of that too for people, but like full on kind of like basically like I'm producing people sort of, but they're, you know, hundreds, thousands of miles away. Uh, so anyway, they send their tracks in, we add all this stuff and I mix it and send it back and it's going really well. Um, if you're in the boat where you have some new music and you want to record it, just drop me a line and maybe we can work together on something like that. Uh, so that's been happening. I've been teaching a bit and, um, yeah, hearing from lots of people. So, uh, before we bring on some callers, uh, I'm going to make a music suggestion for you. I'm going to do this every week. So here's some music suggestions to go listen to. It's totally random. There's no agenda. There's no nothing. I just want you to go and listen to some cool, weird music. Uh, so the first one from, uh, the mid twenties through the early forties, a great Hawaiian guitar player named Saul Hoopy. And he was responsible almost single-handedly really at the time for kicking off this huge Hawaiian craze. He funnily enough came to NAM, the NAM show, which a lot of people know now as like the gear expo in, in the States. There's one in LA and Anaheim and there's one in Nashville now. But the thing started like in the twenties and, and national guitars brought Saul Hoopy over from Hawaii. And he started this huge Hawaiian craze that swept the nation. And his recording, there's two compilations, the complete recordings of Saul Hoopy, Volume 1 and Volume 2. They're incredible. He also had this wicked gig where he would, like, he stayed in the States after he came. And uh, the, Hawaii, or the, the, the Hollywood producer scene got really into Hawaiian music, too. And there's a lot of, like, there's, like, Betty Boop movies that have Hawaiian features in them. And he's actually in a Betty Boop movie. But he used to have this gig where he would he would get hired to show up on movie sets and play like weepy Hawaiian music to make the starlets cry before their crying scenes in the movie. How cool is that? So go listen to Sal Hoopy. And then my other listening suggestion of the week is Colossal Head by Los Lobos. And if you are a fan of this show and you're listening and you're into the kind of stuff we're talking about, then you either know that record or you should know that record. If you're into that Los Lobos era where they did all those experimentally cool and sonically wild records with Mitchell Froome and Chad Blake in the late 90s, early 2000s, Kiko gets all the attention. But for me, actually, I, I love Colossal Head even more. This, I, something about the songs and the performances are crazy. So go have yourself a listen to Saul Hoopy and or Los Lobos. And that's my recommendation for the week. All right, so here on the podcast, we are a listener-supported show. I really uh, do appreciate the contributions and Patreon subscribers who kick in every month or or one time and um, help out with the expenses and the costs for putting on a show like this. I greatly appreciate it. And if you are in a position to help out, you can do so by going to the podcast page, which is at stevedawson.ca or thehenhousestudio.com. And you go to the podcast page and right there at the top is a donate button. You can do a one-time donation or you can subscribe monthly via Patreon. Another way you can really support the show is to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. There's been some really nice reviews lately. And so that helps out too. So some of the contributors that helped out this week, I'd just like to shout out to them because I can't do it without you. And thank you so much. 
to Victor Wells, Jay Nichols, Colleen Graham, Kelly Maynard, Carol Dawson. That's my mom. My mom. Yeah. Thanks, mom. Hey, did I mention that we have an Instagram page now? Well, we have an Instagram page now. Uh, I think it's Makers and Shakers Podcast on Instagram. Go um, follow that. So either last week or, or two weeks ago, I was expressing my surprise that there were so many listeners apparently in Scandinavian countries. And I got an email this week from Craig Farr, who's a percussionist and composer. And he said, hi, just a little note to prove you have listeners in Scandinavia. The lockdown is still in place over here, so we're all mainly streaming concerts live or pre-recorded. Really enjoy your show. Keep up the good work and stay safe. So there you go. Craig Farr and apparently some other people because actually this podcast like does quite well in the podcast charts in Scandinavian countries. So weird and crazy. So let's get on to the show. Dave Bedini. So the Real Statics are kind of one of those bands that um, Canadians all know and love and people from outside of Canada don't know them as much, and they should. There's a, a few bands in the history of Canadian music that got to be massive in Canada. The Tragically Hip probably the, is the most famous, where they could play like two or three nights at any massive stadium and fill it. And then they would play in the States, and there would be a few Canadians that would come out, <laughs> but they just didn't break in the States. And eventually they just stopped trying. And that happens quite a bit, but there's some bands that just get massive in Canada. <clears throat> so the Tragically Hip were one, and the Real Statics are another one, where they kind of just never really tried that hard to uh, to break out of Canada, and they just did amazingly well in Canada and created all kinds of amazing music. So I got to tell you a bit about them because a lot of people aren't going to know the Real Statics if you're listening in in, in Europe or or even the states, and you should. They have a bunch of records that came out. They They've been technically together for a hell of a long time, like 40 years, uh, although there's been huge gaps where they don't do anything. And and they did put out a record last year, which is super cool. They started playing in Toronto in the in the 80s when they were just little urchins and um, started making some really cool kind of experimental music, pop music essentially, but weirder and cooler than anything else that was going on at the time. I wasn't aware of them until like the 90s, I guess, when I, when I started touring in bands and they were part of this thing called the Roadside Attraction that was the Tragically Hips touring concert show back then. And that's where I saw them for the first time, and I was blown away. There was Martin Tielli, who is an incredible guitar player and singer. Dave Bedini, who is the other singer and, and rhythm guitar player in the band, awesome. And then Tim Vesely is the, the bass player, and he wrote like some pretty big hits for the band. And great bass player, really nice guy. He's an engineer in Toronto now as well, and I've worked with him a bunch. And together they made a bunch of awesome records. They came out with a record called Melville, and that got them quite a bit of uh, attention around Canada, and they started to do really well. And eventually they took these pretty hardcore left turns and did an album called Whale Music that was inspired by a book, and that became a movie and they did the soundtrack to the movie that was instrumental and or mostly instrumental and really cool and different and then after that they did a tribute to the group of seven who are a famous canadian group of painters that were painting landscapes in canada like a hundred years ago and and the real statics composed and performed a bunch of material inspired by those paintings called the group of seven so they started doing stuff like that that was definitely out of the mainstream and not pop music but still kind of like pop informed 
Anyway, all kinds of great stuff. Go listen to the Reostatics. Go find out about them if you want at reostatics.ca, not .com. .ca is what, what you do up in Canada, just like my website. You can find out about all their music. They were going to be doing some touring, which, of course, they are not anymore. And they put out a great record last year called Here Come the Wolves. And we'll talk about that and their whole history. So here we go. Enjoy my conversation with Dave Bedini. Thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking him. It's my pleasure. All right. Are you in a bit of a bubble? Or are you kind of right in Trump's America there? Or how? What's it like from your view? This is the buckle of the Bible belt, my friend. So it's, yeah, um, right. I mean, Nashville itself is a bit like Austin, you know, where right. um, there's a, it's like a peaceful enclave of, of musicians and like-minded sure. folks. But, um, you know, I live on the outskirts of town and, you know, my neighbors, it's Trumpville out here, like just five miles right, wow. from, from downtown. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a little bananas, you know. <laughs> so you're regarded as a communist by your friends and neighbors. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. You can demystify that to them. And, you know, some of them are really nice folks. So it's, it's a good lesson for me and my little Canadian brain to, you know, to wrap my head around that people that I just completely think are out to lunch are, can actually be nice people, too. So there's a bit of that. It shows. Yeah. And it does show you that. I mean, you know, Christian fundamentalism aside, there, there, there does seem to be, you know, uh, in the States, there seems to be kind of enough there on the you know enough yeah friendliness and goodwill and uh you know um you know neighborliness and uh general kind of kindness among people yeah who have you know opposite political views that it does kind of give you hope in a way it's just like fuck if all those <laughs> like i was just in detroit the same thing right like if all if only if only if only you know there's yeah so but it is good to see you're right and it's good to see it for yourself as opposed to see it, you know, through the television or, you know, through the news or whatever. So, um, but you're, yeah, you're lucky that you're, you get a chance to see that up close. Yeah. It's really up close and it's going to heat up now and it's going to stay hot for the next, yeah, you know, sure. two years or whatever the hell it is. I mean, it's crazy how long they drag this shit out for, but <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, I know it's crazy. Well, we had, um, we had Carl Bernstein reach out to us at the newspaper wanting oh. to do an event for us, which was amazing. I bet. And it's like, oh, it's so great. So, um, and he asked, you know, could I do it with Margaret Atwood? And I asked a lot of her, but she was like, of course, I'd love to talk to him and do a little event. But he's like, I, but I, he said, he came with a caveat. He was like, I just have to, I have to hang in here until this trip, you know, the impeachment trial ends. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, when do you think that will be? And he was like, no, but nobody, nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So we're hoping it's shut down before the Democratic convention starts. But, uh, but I think it was Clinton who they, they, the impeachment trial actually persisted beyond, beyond the actual election too. So we'll see. Hopefully, it'll come to a conclusion at some point, which would help us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I uh, I wanted to talk to you because because you've lived and worked and thrived artistically through a lot of major shifts in in the industry music mm-hmm. industry that is um there's also the you know the press and the the newspaper industry that you're involved in now but focusing on the on the musical side of things um with the real statics album that came out a few months ago maybe we could kind of start there and sure i'm i'm amazed to find that the band actually formed in the late 70s you, you guys must have been kids so can you tell me a little bit about starting that band and you know just what it's like being in that same band like all these decades later it's it's pretty incredible yeah we were so young actually in the beginning that uh, my dad 
used to have to, to fill out these um, applications that we would submit yeah. to the liquor control board to allow <laughs> us to play to play at licensed venues as, you know, 16, 17-year-olds. Um, and I guess it's October this year we have our, uh, celebrate our 40th, 40th anniversary. And wow. um, it's great, you know, it, it, there, there's, I think there's a time probably right before we broke up the second time where we were like, you know, really, we were, you know, you, mm-hmm. we, we really want to be staring at each other in the van. And, and, but now I think being on the other side of it, it's really kind of a source of pride, I think, and a certain amount of resilience, but, um, you know, in, and we are, we can now sort of reflect fondly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, with great humor really at that, uh, at those early days, you know, being kids and, and also just to, can, to put it into some kind of context, you know, we were coming, we were driving in from Etobicoke to play downtown and we were, we really were, despite the fact that, you know, we were making kind of, you know, odd music mm-hmm. at a time when Canadian music uh, was a lot more conservative um, today and in some cases remains ever so, but um being a kind of suburban outsider band a little bit and heading down to, to play the clubs of Toronto where it was largely, um, the domain of, uh, you know, punks yeah, yeah. and weirdos and artists and like, who are these, you know, who are these kids, you know, um, in their dad's blazers, you know, looking <laughs> like they get three meals a day, you know, <laughs> have a soft bed to lay in at the end of the night. That was just, and that was the case. So that was really interesting. And I think the fact that, you know, we're sort of now partly, um, now we've kind of all, sort of almost kind of come full circle in a way that, you know, we are these kind of longstanding established, uh, artists that I'm hope I'm imagining other people sort of want to knock off, off their, off our perch. And that's fine. That's the way it should be. Right, right. Um, but, but yeah, it is good to have that longevity has been a, a real source of pride and honor for us. I think after all these years, let's talk about like the super early time for a second, because, um, like the bands obviously, you know, shifted here and there. You've gone through a number of drummers too. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the band that that most people like know and are aware of, the core is you and and Tim and Martin. But when you started the band, was Tim around? Like I know Martin wasn't there right away, but was Tim there? Yeah. So really in effect, it's Tim and I are celebrating our forty that okay. Yeah. Um yeah, no, we were we were friends. We played um we were, you know, sixteen year old kids, you know, jamming yeah. in uh, in our bedrooms, and it was it was him and I, and then and then a drummer, Rod Westlake, who is a pilot now, um, and he, um, cool. we, uh, yeah, we, um, he was on our first, sure, was he our first drummer? He was actually our, no, he was our first drummer, and then we ended up drumming with uh, Graham Kirkland, who was also a kid, but he's a sort of a he had a reputation as being a really interesting jazz and progressive drummer here for a while, and then he gave way to Dave, but yeah, it was, it was Tim and I, and then Martin came around around 1985 or something. So 85, 86. Um, so it's still a long time for that core unit, but yeah, Tim and I were just, you know, we were, and it was interesting too, because it, music in that day is certainly in Toronto anyways, was, um, the, the scene was built on, you know, the DIY ethic. It wasn't, yeah. you know, there was never any, never any thought of, you know, being signed to a record label or doing anything in a conventional way. You make cassette tapes, right? Like Tim would make the covers <laughs> for cassette tapes. And I remember Daniel Richler, who hosted the new music actually saying, you know, remember when we were on the new music, I think in 1986, maybe, which was just such an amazing thing to be on 
to be on city TV. Sure. I remember him saying during the interview, your tape is so great, but the artwork is terrible. And we were like, <laughs> well, Tim did it right? so, with an exacto knife and some cardboard paper. But that was, you know, that was kind of great being sort of at least knowing in the beginning, uh, like now I think with kids, it's a little bit like, you know, it's such a Jenga, right? Like how does it, Oh my God, I can't how, it, how it is all, yeah, how was it all built? I can't imagine. Yeah. No, and, and you know, back then it was just like, well, how is it, how is it done? Well, you just, you know, you play, you, record you get a good. Song, you put on, yeah, that's right. That's right. So we were lucky to kind of come up in that time, I think. So what kind of stuff were you into? Like, were you, were you like a, like a punk rock fan or like, were you listening to country music or, cause there's all kinds of, of shit that influences your, your song. So I'm just wondering like what the, what the, the big things were for you when you were super young. Yeah. I mean, punk could have gone one or two ways for me. I remember actually my, my parents calling me into their bedroom <laughs> and the national, Nolan Nash, the national was on and, they were like, you know, look at this, look what's happening here. Look how horrible this is. And, you know, it was kids in, uh, in, uh, in garbage bags and safety pins listening to <laughs> sex pistols. There's a clip of it. And, you know, these people interviewed on King's road talking about how punk rock has ruined England. And, and I could have either gone, well, this is fantastic. I don't be part <laughs> of this or, or it's, it's terrifying. And to me, I was, to me, I was actually terrified. So yeah. it wasn't until the Ramones really for me, who were kind of, for me, like they were, a, even though pre, they predated those bands, they were sort of a friendlier kind of uh-huh. punk band. Yeah, so that was, so punk, no. So we kind of went, from, for us, the steps were the Ramones right into New Wave. And okay. New Wave was, you know, buoyant and <laughs> wholesome to a yeah. point. And, but a little, a little weird too, but um, uh, punk was... What were the big ones for you as far as the New Wave scene went? Band-wise. We saw, yeah, we saw XTC on their Drums and Wires tour in oh, 1979 at the Danforth Music Hall. And Fingerprints, who were a Scottish band, opened and the lead singer leapt into the crowd and fought a guy who was dodging <laughs> him from the front. And that was like, well, I think we would have seen that XTC show right after we had seen the Ramones at uh, the Canadian World Music Festival where they were, they were booed off stage after five songs. But bands like that, you know, in the Rough Trade were a band that were uh-huh. huge here. You know, from 78 to 1980, I mean, there was a live simulcast broadcast of uh, a rough trade in concert at the Bathurst Street Theater. And Carol Pope, you know, during High School Confidential, where she sings, you know, make me cream my jeans. I remember she was wearing this this mauve leather suit. And I remember her, uh, you know, touching herself while she was singing that line. It was very, 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 very intense and profound. And so we really loved them, and there were a lot of local bands like that that we loved. But all of the English stuff, you know, all the new wave stuff, and you know, um, and we went to see all of them. And the Edge was a great place for that. The Edge was one of the great venues. Where is that? So we'd go see. That was at the corner of Church and Gerard. Oh, okay. I want to say uh, Jarvis and Gerard, maybe. But it was they had a food license. It was a restaurant. So you could go there as an underage kid and still get in, right? Even though they served alcohol. But I remember seeing. You know, or Echo and the Bunnymen, Psychedelic Furs, Jonathan Richmond, The Slits, all of these incredible bands, all coming to Canada for the first time, really. Right, right. There wasn't much of a circuit, right? So they would come up here from New York, and um, the two Garys, who were the promoters, would put them in a nice hotel room and give them some money, and uh, and the club would be packed. But it was just such an education for us being able to go there, two bucks to cost. Wow. And that was where our first show was, actually, in 1980. And once we... After we played The Edge in 1980, having seen all these bands there, we were like, well, that's it. We made it. Like, we made it. <laughs> what it's else can you do? the greatest thing of all time. <laughs> we're the opening band on a three-band bill on a Tuesday night. We have ascended. 
the yeah. mountain, you know. Uh, so, so is that what the the gigs were like in '80 in Toronto? It was like multi-band bills, like bring your own friends down, two bucks a pop. Like it was that kind of a thing. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, there weren't a ton of clubs, and, and the clubs that were there were church basements, oh, okay. um, the basements of hotels. Yeah. Um, yeah, there weren't a lot of like legit legit rooms it was uh again like just kind of local promoters and friends of friends of friends and frankly people who played in bands right putting on these shows there's a series called start dancing that um a couple of people started um they've been uh, lost their memories for me have been lost to time a little bit but they were three kind of cool new wave kids and they were dances that they had in toronto and um you know, uh, bands like curly bands like the Rent Boys, Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet, right, yeah. Mark Malibu and the Wasegas, Fifth Column, all these really amazing bands would play. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, and we were kind of in, in, in the middle of that. And those were great shows. And what about places like the Horseshoe that have been around forever? Like, like was that a, a place that was attainable or not really? Was that a different scene? Not real. Yeah, the Horseshoe back in that day really kind of didn't know what it was because it was moving, you know, it had become a bit of a punk venue. The last Pogo was staged there in 1979, I want to say. And uh, there had been a riot. The cops had come in. Kids had been thrown in jail. And so they moved away from booking any kind of interesting music for a handful of years, really. Wow. So it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't until the later in the 80s, I want to say. I know we did open, we opened a Halloween show for the government, uh, 1990, uh, sorry, 1985, I think. And so things started to change, but no, it certainly wasn't, you know, now it's it's so open in the books, they, you know, booking seven days a week and everybody goes there and it's kind of world famous, but no, it was, it was just kind of a, it was sort of a lost shithole a little bit when we were coming up. <laughs> didn't really know. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't really know. And, and frankly, like people didn't really know if that room would survive really. Right. Um, this was pretty, it was pretty downtrodden. Yeah. So that, you know, like your generation of musicians and artists, like you guys are the first ones where like there was no blueprint for being independent at all. It was like, there was like major artists in the world and, and, and even in Canada, you know, we had, we had big Canadian bands that of course were getting exported and and heard around the world. But, but for you guys, like, who are you looking up to like as, as a band or like modeling as, as like for your career path, getting a major record deal wasn't like a, an ambition. How did you see yourselves um, progressing through the whole swamp of it all? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'd love to, I like, I like that you presuppose that there was a quote unquote career path. <laughs> the truth of the matter is there really wasn't, um, you know, there really wasn't, there was, and again, that it was still kind of, you know, your parents would always tell you to have a backup plan. It was so smart. And they kind of, you know, they thought, well, you know, okay, he's playing the big, you know, and all of our parents came to the shows and stuff and they were really supportive, but they kind of like, yeah, they sort of, it seemed like a dalliance to them. And yeah. I, I think that kind of made us think like, Oh, they're probably right. So we'll just <laughs> keep doing these shows. And, and, and it really, it wasn't until we went on the road, you know, we met at the cabana room. I think it, I'd come back from Ireland. I went to Trinity college in 85 cause I was going to be an academic. Everybody was doing their own. Everybody was on a track to do 
something other than music, basically. Okay. And then we kind of, we huddled together and Dave Clark said, this band is going to live or die unless we go on the road and play. Uh-huh. And this was from somebody who'd never been anywhere outside of Etobicoke before, really. Like he'd never, Dave had never been anywhere. Yeah. And so we're like, okay, well, how do we tour? And then uh, Tim Vesley had played <clears throat> with Andrew Cash. He'd done a tour of Canada with, oh, okay. uh, with Le Tranger. I think it was Le Tranger or maybe Andy Cash, but I can't remember. So he'd come back from that tour. He was like, well, you, you just you call someone and they book some shows for you. It's like, okay, fine. So Sandy Pena, who um, uh, works with uh, Serena Ryder and a bunch of people here, and she's, a, she's an agent. She um, now, which back then she lived in Thunder Bay. Mm-hmm. And so we talked to her and she said, well, why don't you come t- and do a show in Thunder Bay and practice touring. It was like, <laughs> sounds reasonable. Uh-huh. So we booked train tickets to Thunder Bay really? and we went up there and we did, we did a couple of shows at Crocs and Rolls. Crocs and Rolls. Yeah. Yeah. And which is still around, which is mind blowing. But we did that. We learned, we learned record the Edmund Fitzgerald for it. Um, and Martin was in the band at this point and we went up there and uh, missed our train. And I remember, following the train on the tracks in, in one of Sandy's friends, SUV trying to catch the train, which was <laughs> with the, you know, Lake Superior on our right. It was incredibly, it was an amazing kind of Alex Colville moment. Mm-hmm. And we, um, anyway, so we, we, we barely survived that, that of uh, adventure, yeah. but uh, it was exciting enough to think that, Oh, okay. It'd be fun to be out of ho- away from home doing this. And that's when we did our first tour. And that's when we kind of thought, okay, record a record go on tour, play some shows, win fans, get songs on campus radio. That's how it's, that's how it's done. Um, and that's when it started to kind of, you know, just, just, uh, uh, the dot, the dots started to appear to, right. for us in terms of where we needed to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess back up to the point where, where Martin joins the band, which is really yep. like, I guess, you know, the point at which it becomes the band that yep. everybody knows and loves. So um, like, where did you, where did you guys meet and what was that whole thing? Like, how did you ask him to join the band in the first place? We had a, um, we had a three piece horn section before Martin called the trans Canada soul patrol. And, um, they were really interesting cats. Uh, they were all Humber college students at Dave Clark, Mexico. He went to Humber college yep. and, um, they were all super, super straight um, and really into, you know, jazz and show tunes and stuff. And, and they, they all have lives in music and that was what they wanted. You know, it's like you go, go to school to, enge- to either engineering, you know, or learn auto mechanics or you learn to play saxophone. And these guys learned to play saxophone <laughs> and stuff. And so they had, um, so they, we played with them for about two or three years. And one of, one of, uh, our saxophone players was roommates with Jeff Healy. And I'll never forget, you know, going to his house and, hearing music coming out of a room and walking into that room. And there's Jeff mm-hmm. couldn't have been older than 16, 17 years old, you know, playing as he does wow. um, on the edge of his bed and going like, and it's one of the great kind of untold stories of Canadian guitar playing lore is that him and Martin literally lived within four blocks of each other and didn't even know it and weren't even aware of it. Really? So there's some in the water in Rexdale. Yeah. Between those two cats, but so that was all kind of happening. And then those guys, you know, after a while just couldn't gig because they had, because they were, you know, being offered shows that gigs that actually, you know, paid money and paid stuff, money. And, <laughs> you know, so, so they, um, so they were, they were out of the band and then Dave had met uh, Martin from uh, a mutual friend of ours 
friend of his who um, just grew up closer to where Martin lived. And I think went to school with Martin. Uh, he went to an alternative school and um, you know, there was like this kid, you know, he's pretty groovy. He plays guitar. He can sing, blah, 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 blah. I was like, oh, we'll never let him in the band. <laughs> I think I was the first person to like, because Martin really wasn't cool at all. I mean, he didn't have any, he didn't have kind of a, you know, pedigree he wasn't, you know, downtown musician dude. He was just like, I was like, well, the last thing we need is another kid from the suburbs. He's never left the suburbs, you know? Right. Um, but, uh, so, but of course, uh, so we got together and played with him and, um, you know, it immediately, you know, him and Dave immediately had a really kind of a great sort of shorthand being, um, you know, net, real natural, uh-huh. um, musicians. And, um, and, you know, then, I'm trying to think like, even if, I don't know, it didn't take long before he started to kind of bring in songs. Mm-hmm. I think the first one we actually wrote with him was with, was Ballad of one of Clark Park, parts one and two. And then, you know, and then of course, you know, you, his voice um, sounding the way it did sort of almost straight out of the box really. And then realizing that we kind of had, you know, there was sort of our identity, but even more than that, it was, um, I think we sort of shared that just sort of spirit of adventure a little bit, you know, like wanting to try things and almost kind of exceed beyond our means a little bit. So, yeah. yeah. So that's kind of how that sort of fell into place, I would say. So were any of you trained, like musically trained at all? Like was Dave? Dave Clark was. Yeah. yeah. I think Tim had done some uh, music in school, but in high school, but, um, but that was pretty much it. Right. Right. Certainly not Martin. Like he was self-taught and, um, and yeah, I just kind of hacked around. So yeah, none of that for me either. Okay. So the, you, you mentioned the Wendell Clark song, which is off, um, the first, the, the greatest hits yep. record, right? <laughs> which is your first record. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, and so that record's like really stark. It's cool. And it's like recognizably you, I mean, it's not, it doesn't sound like a fully formed Rio statics maybe, but like all the hallmarks are kind of there in place. <clears throat> Can you tell me a bit about like where you made that record and what the whole process was like? I'm guessing for a lot of you, it was your first time in the studio, right? We went, um, yeah, well, I think, yeah, Tim and I had been in a couple of times. We'd done a few cassettes before yeah. then with, okay. um, with, uh, earlier incarnations of the band, but, um, yeah, we decided we were like, okay, let's, you know, let's make a record. Let's make a record downtown. And, um, big step, big step. <laughs> so we, um, uh, asked around, you know, who makes records? Who's the producer? Who's a mixer? And, uh, somebody said, well, you should talk to Tom Adam. So we went to see Tom and he lived on Ossington Avenue, you know, and, you know, back in that, back in that era, in the early eighties, Ossington Avenue isn't what it is today. It was, you know, we're at Kitty Corner, Ossington and Queen to the uh, mental health center and a really rugged part of Parkdale. Um, and Tom had a, a basement studio, mm-hmm. uh, which was really small and really dark. And Tom, Tom is a beautiful guy, but he's a, he's also a weirdo. He would strike you as, <laughs> as weirdo almost immediately, you know, long hair, long face, really a low, a low talker. And, um, uh, you know, um, uh, unlike anybody we'd met before and a chain, chain smoking hand rolled hash joints too. Um, and so we were like, you're hired. Like we didn't know, we didn't know any better. We were like, okay, sure. Like he expressed interest. We uh-huh. said, fine. So Tom Adam, yeah, he recorded a uh, greatest hits, um, 
uh, at uh, uh, Enormous Studios, I think it was called. That was his basement place? No, this was a different place that he said, basement's too small, can't fit a whole band in here, I got a friend who has a place. So we went and recorded this other room. You know what it's like those early days, you know, you, you know, you're terrified. Um, you think that, uh, you know, uh, you, you know, you, you're sort of questioning everything you do. And then, uh, you know, overdubs and certainly lead vocals are harrowing experiences because everybody's looking at you through the glass. But sure. because we were sort of, you know, such so tight as friends, and we'd known each other for, you know, a handful of years before then it was, I remember it being a pretty positive experience. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember like Ballad of Wendell Clark, especially and Crescent Moon a little bit too, but almost immediately getting played on the radio, uh, which that's amazing. eh? It's amazing. And commercial radio too, yeah. right? Not just, you know, so um, like, here's this, I remember like getting played on like Buffalo radio. Here's this cool new band from Toronto. So yeah, that, that kind of stuff really went a long way. And, and then, you know, our second record came after that, two and a half months of touring. So we were really tight when we went in to make Melville and later whale music. And, you know, you sort of realized the value of of live performance and of getting out there and hacking those songs out and getting them really kind of like the leathery, well-worn catchers bit, you know, like feeling really comfortable to you and stuff too. I wouldn't describe those early sessions as comfortable, but but they were productive. Yeah. So, I mean, I remember like the first times I ever went in in the studio, I was sort of like at the mercy of, you know, whoever we worked with, like engineer and production wise. And looking back on it now, knowing what I know, I was under the impression that the way that you make a record is completely different from how I think about it now. And so like, did you find yourself in that situation where, you know, things were done in a way that were maybe not the best for you guys at the time, looking back on it, but at the time you just didn't know any better. So you just kind of went along with it or was it pretty, or like, did you set up and play as a band or what was your setup like? Well, it's interesting. Like the first, so we'd been in the studio in in 1980, we actually did a 45. Oh, cool. Um, Myself, Tim Vesley, Dave Clark, and then a keyboard player, Dave Crosby, is a friend of mine who lives in Cologne now. He, um, we went in the studio. Uh, that was the first time we'd ever, well, second time we'd ever been in the studio. And that was a, at a place called Round Sound. Mm-hmm. And it was in East York, I think. And um, two things happened. One, the, um, the engineer um, ordered like a giant party-sized pizza. <laughs> and I remember him basically laying it across um, the console yeah. while we were tracking. <laughs> and so if he, if he had to dial in a little bit of, you know, if he had to EQ stuff, it was like not while he was eating the pizza. He had to move the pepperoni. He took the lid and it folded over like the entire console. I remember that happened. Mm. And then I remember after he finished his pizza, um, put away the box and then just another guy appeared and like took over the session. And I don't think they exchanged two words guys. Oh, like because his his shift was over. So yeah. So that was <laughs> oh like. God. So that was so when we got in with Tom Adam, it was like ah oh, okay it would no it that that was um that was kind of as close to kind of a pro recording as we'd ever got because you know Tom it was no problem for Tom being the inveterate um, consumer of hash. It was no problem for him to pull long, long, long hours. Right. And we would have put in really long hours to record. Yeah, it's for sure. For sure. So no, it felt like we were making Abbey Road and we were with Tom there. That's for sure. 
the greatest hits record comes out. And so what was the level of, of recognition and success in Canada? I mean, that was sort of before I was aware of yeah. uh, anything. And I, growing up in Vancouver, I, it just didn't, you know, I was a little urchin then. But so for you guys, like, did things immediately, like you mentioned, getting some airplay, but like, to what extent were you um, suddenly getting getting to be more of a recognizable band around Toronto? Um, yeah, uh, uh, like... It's hard to quantify, you know, whether we were recognizable with that record. I mean, I, I don't really think we were yet. Okay. Um, yeah, we'd done it. We'd done our tour. We'd um, gotten some press. I mean, even for us, the metric was more where we get making the charts of like CKLN mm-hmm. and CIUT. Well, not even CIUT, but CHRW and um, CKMS, all of the great college stations in, in Canada. If, if it was, if the songs, if the records were getting played there, that was a great kind of early metric. Yeah. Um, and maybe getting it, getting it reviewed in the Globe and Mail, or getting it reviewed in the Toronto Star mm-hmm. or the Georgia Strait. Um, that was a, that was kind of a big thing. And that sort of, yeah, that was then, those were the next kind of stepping stones, I think. Yeah. There wasn't anything really beyond that. Yeah. So it was sort of something that like enabled you to tour, I guess, and, and slayer and like have a, have a product out that you could actually like sell and all that. Um, was that out first album just on cassette or like what was happening? I guess, well, yeah, that's pre CD, but re, did like, did you well, have vinyl of it too? Or was it just on cassette? Yeah, I think it was on cassette. It was on all formats, I think. But, but, um, I should say that, uh, so the record came out on X Records. Okay. The world famous X Records. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were two they were two sort of fans. Yeah. Um, Gary Verinder and Rob Marcuse, who made a record called For No Apparent Reason, which was an early um Kine- uh, Toronto um uh compilation record with Plaster Scene Replicas, uh, Sarah Harmer's first band Saddle Tramps is on there, Shadowy Men. Uh, and we had and we had Bolt Battle of Wonder Clark on there, and then they were like, "Let's make a oh, we'll make a let's do your album." So um, they said they'll make they'll make the record for us, and I was like, "Great, we're going on tour, fantastic!" And so uh, you know we were getting ready to leave on for tour. Um, you know we were all uh, uh, pulled in with the Delta eighty eight. My dad's Delta eighty eight it. Uh, uh, in the driveway of Martin's parents' place, and you know our girlfriends were there, and <laughs> our all of our relatives. It seems my sister was there. It's like we were going to fucking war or something. They were all like, "Wow, all right, you know, have a great trip." And <laughs> and we and I remember one of the classic moments, great inauspicious moments, is we pulled out of the driveway and we'd forgot to like close the hatch of the U-Haul so shit started to tumble out almost immediately and they were like oh stop stop okay so we loaded stuff back in and then drove yeah. and um but but I remember we telling Gary and Gary and Rob you know we're leaving I'm trying I can't remember what the date was but I think it was sometime near the end of June we're leaving on June 28th whatever to leave and they're like well we'll have the records ready by then no problem and then we left and then they were like, "Don't worry, we're going to be ready in a couple of weeks. We'll we'll mail them to you in Winnipeg." And of course, they didn't show up in Winnipeg. And then we'd be in Calgary, and we're like, "They were like, don't worry, we'll mail them." So the, the, the story is basically, we arrived home after being on the road for two months, and then and only to find oh, the record had finally been made by you know like October <laughs> of that year. So we went on the road with I think we had T-shirts probably on that first tour. Cool, but. Um, yeah, so we got the record as when we came back from from our first tour, and of uh, course, 
Yeah, of course. Um, how was the first, like your first few tours, like across Canada? I assume you probably went west from Toronto, unless you went. Like, did you also go out to the Maritimes and stuff, or was it mostly like Toronto West? Yeah, it was mostly Toronto West. We okay. didn't go to the Maritimes until yeah after after Whale Music, I think, was when we went out there. Okay, and and was the were the first tour or two like were they pretty bleak as far as like you know crowds in Calgary and Vancouver and stuff? I don't remember them as bleak, honestly, because it was so thrilling to be in other places. Right. It was, it was so great to be in other places together. And like I said before, Dave Clark had never been anywhere. So yep. for him, going to Winnipeg was like going to Berlin. You know, <laughs> going to Calgary was like going out to Paris. It really, I know that sounds ridiculous, but it was, it no, was I get true. It. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, um, and then you play shows and then, you know, you meet... Even if you're only meeting the eight weirdos in town, they're beautiful weirdos, and they're people that I'm sure is the case with you that you know you still ma- maintain a connection. Yeah, to. I remember. You know, Calgary, or Regina. You know, Regina. Fuck, not knowing anybody in Regina, and then sort of saying from the stage, does anybody have any place where we could stay? Which is what <laughs> just something you did. And Andrew Wallace, you know, Andrew Wallace. Still remember his name, Andrew. He was like, yeah, my parents are away in Florida. <laughs> I would say it and he had like his dad was a minister, a well regarded minister in town and he had a beautiful like eight room home. And yeah, I think it was finally like on the sixth day, Andrew was like, So you guys gonna leave soon? <laughs> what are your plans? We were like, Yeah, don't worry, we had a gig in, in Calgary tomorrow night. So but it we like it was great to have to have those kind of soft landings find you a little bit. Yeah. And um you know, so it was yeah, we would have done shows to very, very few people, I think. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't remember it as bleak at all. I remember it as being like exciting a, and life shaping. Yeah, a, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. If I have my timeline right, it seems like there's like four or five years between when Greatest Hits comes out and when Melville comes out. Is that is that right? Yeah, that sounds right. Yep, I think four years. So, like, what was going on in those four years? Was that just a bunch of touring and stuff? Or were you kind of like, you did some tours and then just, like, nothing was going on? Or what was happening? Because Melville was like... Yeah, we broke up. We did. We oh, you did? For a year and a half. Yeah, yeah. We were... Um, the tour... Okay, so we did 87, we toured in Canada. And then 1988, somebody, namely me, had, had, the, had the brilliant idea that we should go and tour in Ireland. Oh. And um, I wanted to do that because I'd gone to school there, and I loved, I loved, like, I just thought the culture would be perfect for us. We'd yeah. go and play some shows in England and that sort of stuff. Um, it was a bit, it was a disaster, is what I mean. Man, like I got, we got so many great stories out of it. Um, you know, uh, stories that are great, you know, great to tell, but were not great to experience. Really, <laughs> um, it's fuck. It's just four idiots out on the road, not knowing what they were doing. So um, we came back and broke up more or less because of that experience. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, a year and a half um, of not doing, not playing together. And then, and then sort of, you know, and then slowly we kind of fell back into it was we really, once we regrouped after that, that would have been 1989, late in 89. Yeah. We just, we savaged, you know, we savaged our, our, rep- our new record. Like we really, we, Bit into it hard, mm-hmm. um, you know, because we hadn't played together, and and um, so all of those songs from Melville are born. They're born of the, that first tour, but um, everybody went in and rad, madly wrote, and then um, and then came back, and we were just so we had such energy, and we we're so excited, really, that we were back together. I think. Yeah, yeah. Did. 
Yeah, so Melville, I mean, it it's definitely more fully formed. The thing that, like, in, in going back and listening to it this week before I was going to call you, um, for that time, it's, it's, it's really aged well. Like, it doesn't sound, there's no dorky effects on it. Um, it sounds like a good rock and roll record with, you know, all kinds of diverse influences. How did you approach the the recording process? And were, and were you guys thinking about, you know, how to, how to make something that was current yet kind of timeless in a way, or was it just like laying it down, not really thinking about that kind of thing? Cause it really has, it really does sound like a good contemporary record still. Oh, thanks. Thanks a lot. We, um, we did, we kind of knew, like, it was funny, you know, we'd gone across Canada and, um, you know, had written while we were on that tour for sure about, about where, I mean, you know, a lot of the place names and stuff that, that are on yeah. Melville and whale music, um, are come from that, that first tour, those, those discovering those places and, and stuff. And, um, and after, you know, not really playing for a handful of years and then coming back together, we sort of realized that not a lot of people were, 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 were writing about that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, still after four years, not, not a lot of change in terms of, in terms of Canadian identity and music, I guess a little bit. So when we did make Melville and make those songs, we were really conscious of the fact that it was going to be a distinct record. Yep. Um, whether it was going to be a successful record, we didn't know, but you know, we were, we did know there weren't a lot of bands, you know, contemporary rock bands singing about Saskatchewan and shipwrecks and, mm-hmm. and the fairies and that kind of stuff. So um, we kind of knew that we had, we had our own thing. And we really kind of embraced that. And there's a lot more textures on that record, a lot yeah. more overdubs. And we really tried to, we tried to paint it a little bit. Everybody was singing a lot more. Martin was kind of a taste car, you know, being such a brilliant, brilliantly gifted singer. It was like, oh, we got somebody like, so immediately like his kind of aesthetic sort of rubbed off on the four of us a little bit. Yeah. And we all we challenged each other to become better singers just to kind of support mm-hmm. the band. And um, so there's a lot more vocals on that. It's a lot more melodic. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Can you tell me a bit about the, um, the, like the vocal arrangement stuff? Because there, there is a lot of like really cool harmonies and things like that that you guys were developing. So was somebody in particular kind of orchestrating that or was that like a band effort? It was cool. Like, you know, uh, somebody would lay down a lead vocal and then you would just go into the, and go and just try ideas, basically. It wasn't, yeah, it became a little, later on, it became a little bit more like the songwriter would direct things a little bit more. Yes. But here it was just so fun. It was like, like, get in there and see what you can do and see what you come up with. And Michael Phillip, our producer, 
was great at just kind of sorting all that kind of stuff and, uh-huh. you know, pushing it forward when it needed to be pushed forward and then kind of holding it back or whatever, just sort of um, dispensing with an idea whenever it wasn't going anywhere. But um, no, there was, there was that um, sense of, because like a lot of us, we were all kind of writing for each other and stuff too. Like there was a lot of, it was really interesting how the songs were put together and, you know, like with, I had written Saskatchewan when I was in Italy actually in 1989. And then I had uh, written Murder um, and Wish years before as well. And then I was like, you know, it was great to be, be able to kind of hand that song to Martin to have him kind of work on it oh, and cool. kind of make it his and stuff. So that was pretty cool. And when winter comes too, everybody's got their own kind of part in that. And um, so that was, so we really wanted it to be, we wanted it to sound like a band mm-hmm. and we wanted it to sound like a Canadian band. And, and, and so we were aware of that when we were making it kind of 100%. What kind of time frame are we talking about for making this record? Like how, like two, or was two it, weeks. Two yeah, weeks. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Two weeks in and out, you know, and geez, I, I, not much more than that mixing wise, honestly, like maybe three weeks top to bottom. Like it was really, we went in there and, and worked really quickly. Uh, long hours, probably. Yeah, super long. Yeah. Um, Winter time too, which was nice on Stafford Street, downtown Toronto. You know those times. I think they still exist in the city where you'll step out of the out of the um, you know recording studio at three o'clock in the morning to you know have a smoke or whatever, and the city is completely quiet. Yeah. Save for like a beautiful new snowfall and that kind of really. I think that sort of supported where we were going in terms of writing about the winter and writing about the snow and writing about that kind of loneliness, that very distinctly kind of Canadian solitude, I guess. And, and um, so, yeah, it was the perfect environment for us. Yeah, I totally know what you mean. I had an experience actually with Tim Vesely when he was engineering a record I was making in Toronto and had that exact experience, like a late night, quiet downtown Toronto, yeah. Toronto, which is absurd when you think about it, but like it, it really contributed to the vibe of the record. Big time. Yeah, no, it's lovely. I think you have to use the environment a little bit that way too. Or, yeah. Or when it, those gifts are presented to you, it's, it's, it's nice to draw inspiration from them. Dynamic wise, like with, within the band, were like, were you bringing a complete song and Martin was bringing a complete song and Tim was bringing a complete song or were you like really collaborating in the writing process? Yeah, super collaborative. Um, and, it, and it remains so. Um, okay. Yeah, we come with uh, we kind of come with a general sketch. I, this is not not exclusive to every piece, but I think in general, we come with a a, a pretty good idea of what we want to do, and yeah. then um, and then everybody everybody is free to um, either everybody's free to either kind of bend it in another direction or you know, suggest that it head in another direction or contribute yeah contribute a line here or there and. Um, and then the singer, the songwriter kind of co- commands that process a little bit, but it's still yeah. really, really open. I think we would, I think we would see it as kind of a bit of a grind otherwise, right, um, right. not having that. And that's what you want to do, you know, when you have distinct, um, you know, musicians in a band, yeah. you want to be able to, yeah, you don't just want to use them as, 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 you know, as side players, you want to use them as. You know, I want to be as excited to place, you know, uh, you know, a support role in a song as I do fronting fronting a, a band, and it's right. it's been great live for us too because we rely on each other that way, and I think that's partly contributes to our longevity because we take turns kind of fronting the band, and, and I think that yeah. helped with in terms of just 
know, you know, we're not quite weather beaten yet as a live entity because <laughs> we're able to kind of, you know, uh, play off each other and stuff. So, uh-huh. yeah, but yeah, I can't, I really can't think of w- one instance where it's been like, this is what it's like on tape. This is what we'll play. Uh, right. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's that's pretty unique, I bet. Yeah, I noticed like in on the Melville credits. I think it's on Melville that that all this, I, aside from maybe one song, everything is credited as written by the Real Statics. Yeah, which yeah. you know, I, I wondered if that was just a way of like not getting into that typical band fight about who wrote what and who gets what money. But it, it literally, probably in in this case, was more like your band actually sat down and wrote these songs more or less in a collaborative way. Yeah, I mean, symbolically, too, I had always thought, you know, um, bands are a great example of taking people from, like, disparate um, experiences and being able to come together to, you know, um, create something positive. And, you know, we wanted to, you know, it can be done, you know, prove to people that it can be done. And that's how, that was the, that was the, uh, the, uh, the front that we yeah. wanted to, yeah, that we wanted to put forward um, right. as, as a band, for sure. Yep. Yeah. So when that record came out, I'm, I'm guessing things like really elevated for you um, as far as like the touring situations would have been better. And, and you guys were probably getting pretty huge in, in the um, like the, the independent radio, college radio in Canada. And that was probably affecting your draw as a band. Um, was that pretty much like right around the Melville time where, where things started getting better for you? Yeah, uh, and much music too played our record body count video a lot. Yeah, and um, that really helped. And yeah, for sure, that was yeah Melville. I remember like there was a huge spread in the Toronto Star when that record came out, and mm-hmm. um, CBC, Brave New Waves, Nightlines played that those records a lot. And yeah, mm-hmm. it was it was great. It was that was I think it was kind of like our presence was sort of announced a little bit on that with that record feels like it yeah and it's, yeah. it's true it did happen for sure that's how that happened definitely was there any any problems like trying to recreate that record because also with with that with that album it's you know there's enough experimental stuff and martin I, I i assume it's martin doing most of the guitar layering but that could be you as well like no was that was that an issue at all of like trying to get some of the record vibe across on stage live yeah it was interesting like uh you know, um, Martin's gear, um, you know, even, you know, while it is able to conjure, um, sounds from beyond the ether, um, (laughs) uh, it, oftentimes it just doesn't work. So so there'd be moments, there'd be moments live where, um, you know, it's like, okay, so we would, it was a great excuse kind of, and I don't want to leave it entirely at his feet. Because you know whatever all of us all of our shit can fuck up, but um, yeah, it was um, it was an opportunity to really not not worry too much about um, about sounding like the the record. So making like live experience something completely uh, independent of the record. Yeah, that cool. said that said though, like when 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 his gear was singing and when we were having good nights, I think we were able to produce. Um, that sound live if, if we decided to go in that direction. Um, yeah. Because he is, you know, Martin's got, like, it's interesting, you know, he just somebody should make a movie of his feet 
you know, because um, <laughs> he's got these cowboy boots, the old cowboy boots that he uses, that he wears. Um, and, he, you know, it's really a neat, it's such a fascinating, I can't be looking down too much because I can't have to worry about my own thing. But it, with those moments where I could sort of, where I can dwell on the tap dance. Uh-huh. And it's also, a, it's also a tap dance where, you know, he's singing these really interesting, remarkable parts too. Um, I, somebody, somebody once said, you know, that somebody should make a movie of Gord Downey's hand, his right hand. I remember thinking, yeah, that'd be a great one too. Should do, somebody should have done his hand, and then somebody should still do Martin's <laughs> feet because <laughs> they're good. They're good use of extremities in Canadian rock, that's for sure. How much were you guys touring in those days? I assume this was like this is pre like roadside attraction and stuff. Yep. Like, were you, were you just going back and forth across Canada? Yeah, we toured a lot. We toured like fuck. We toured a lot. We toured five or six, seven times, and that. In that time frame, yeah. How were you guys, like, with your stamina and stuff? Like, some bands can't fucking hack it, right? Like, being out in Canada and, like, getting sick and stuff. Like, were you guys able to to um, keep it together on long Canadian tours over and over? It's funny because we did, you know, there were a lot of opportunities for us to go to the States to, to perform. Um, but we were just too, we barely survived those Canadian tours. Okay. You know, yeah, that was all, honestly, that's kind of all we had in us. Like people would say, our management would say, great, you know, you've just done, you know, 14 dates in whatever, Quebec, Ontario. Um, yeah. We want to send you to, you know, do the America, the Eastern seaboard. And it was like, we just couldn't do it. It was just, really, yeah, it would, it was like, no, we never did those. Well, we well we would go out and cross and do Canada and stuff too, um, and it became easier the more familiar it became to us, the more we, we got yeah. to those cities. But we didn't have the capacity to really go beyond. We had to kind of come home and just yeah. recalibrate, and you know, and you know whether that was a wise choice or not, we'll never know. Like I'll never know whether if we've been pushed more, whether it would have resulted in greater success and popularity, or whether it would have resulted in the demise of the band. But we just decided, yeah. you know, that I think we were going to do a Men Without Hats tour. They were going to, we were going to go in the States and tour with them. And we we shut it down, I think, like a week before we were supposed to start, uh, much to their chagrin, obviously. But we knew that if we went out, it just would have been a disaster. And a lot of those uh, opportunities to tour the States were were opening for bands that yeah. we didn't really think were a great match. And I don't think we, you know, it's one thing to go out there and play for tragically hip audiences and, and, and great hockey rinks that you've always wanted to play. It's another thing to like, you know, go and play some shitty club in Toledo, Ohio with a band that you hate, you hate, you know, totally. the, the 12 people. So <laughs> yeah, it would have been replacement time probably. And it wouldn't have been a good thing. And, and it, you know, anyway, so that's, that's how I reflect. So who had the foresight to go like, you know what, this is going to kill us. Fuck it. We're not going to do it. Yeah. Dave Clark, Dave Clark. Oh, yeah, okay. he was he was he was adamant when, you know, yeah, when the drummer says they can't do it, it's like okay, sort of, you know, there's so much leans on him anyways. And yeah, were you guys all pretty much in agreement on that, or was it kind of a like did it cause band strife? No, or? it didn't. It didn't cause band strife at all. In uh, yeah, no, we were like, yeah, fine, I could use three weeks at home anyways. So we yeah. also have yeah. like we all have really pretty stable marriages. Like we've all been with the same person for a long time. And, um, you know, we all have families. Mine doesn't have a family, but the rest of us have families. And I think it's the product of not killing ourselves to do that. Yeah. 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 So you guys never played in the States at all? A little bit. Oh, we, yeah, we did. Uh, we did. Oh, sure. We would go, but we wouldn't do monster 
right. we got to make it in the States tours. We would okay. kick off here and there and do some mostly border stuff and other things, but never really, yeah. you know, never, no, no milk runs, right? None of that. Okay. You mentioned the, the hip and, you know, I know the roadside attraction was one thing, but could you maybe just tell me a bit about your relationship and how you kind of, um, crossed over with those guys and what a good fit they were and maybe about a little bit about the impact of, of the, the, um, what, I don't remember what year that was or if it happened more than once, but I was definitely, I went to it. I remember seeing you guys. Um, but maybe just tell me a little bit about that whole scene. Yeah, that would have been, um, I'm trying to think, uh, well, Gord had said some really nice things about us. I remember, which was Mm -hmm. really nice about how Melville like was like this for him. He said it was like, discovering a room in a house that you never knew existed before. And that was really lovely and helped you know, his writing and learning to, you know, write about Canada and stuff. So that was lovely. And then, um, we had never really kind of crossed paths before. And, um, it turned out he ended up living on the same street as me in Toronto at Dovercourt, uh, Dovercourt road, um, not far from where I live today, but, um, so yeah, we sort of kind of met a little bit, uh, in, in the neighborhood. And then yeah. they asked us to perform it, uh, on Canada day, 1994 at Molson park. It was okay. a big, tragically hip Canada day show, um, where Daniel Lenoir had, was driven from the stage by, um, uh, uh I think they counted like uh, 2,100 water bottles had been flung at him <laughs> oh, by the God. bad, 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 tragically hit people, the fans, quote unquote fans. And Holy shit. It was a disaster. And Gord came out on stage at the beginning of the hip show and said, this song's for assholes who throw shit at musicians. And it was really oh quite defiant. And anyways, that was when their crowd was really, that was the height of their, you know, loudish um, fan base. Behavior. Yeah. yeah. And they, they obviously transformed over the years. And then, so we had, um, we, you know, with whale music, we'd made that and it was important for us to kind of have, you know, as many people kind of hear that record and try to get that, try to kind of get a bit of a mass recognition or acceptance of that. I mean, we figured there's, there's going to be at least, at least one song on that record. Somebody's going to like, so, yeah. but it was, so it, no, and, and, and their support was, uh, you know, even with Gord starting their live album by saying, you know, for the aesthetics, uh, we're all richer for seeing them. That's not to be underestimated, the impact of that. Like, right. people, people still come up to me and say to me, I'm richer for having met you and all this. They use that line all the time. And, but anyway, so, um, but it's lovely though, that that's, that for a lot of people that are significance is tied to the fact that like Gord liked us and that they liked us and uh-huh. stuff. So um, I'm grateful for, for, for it as well, because, you know, we recorded, they recorded that live album at Cobo hall in Detroit and we opened for them that show that was part of one of those tours. And um, mm-hmm. I remember before the set, Tim Besley said, uh, you know, we should do record the Emma Fitzgerald tonight. And I was like, well, we only have like 37 minutes and that song's like 14 <laughs> That's minutes. Take he was like, well, <laughs> You know, I've just by the Maritime Sailors Museum, you know, and this is all, you know, wound into the history of that song. It's like, fine. So we did that song that night at Cobo Hall and we got a standing ovation. It was one of the highlights of our tour with them. And um, the Detroit crowd, there's nothing like a Detroit crowd. And they 
like they kind of really were able to 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 dial into what we were trying to do hmm. by by that song. And then years later, um, my son was competing in the World Robotics Olympiad at Cobo Hall. Oh. So I was like, oh, now it's it's all it's all come full circle. And I owe it to those guys <laughs> for giving us those experiences. So yeah, and, you know, that time before when that song came out, we were on tour with them, and that got a lot of airplane stuff, and it really helped. It really helped us a lot. How did it feel for you guys as musicians suddenly playing in like giant stadiums where you'd been playing in rock clubs for for years? Like, was it a positive experience generally, or was it like a big adjustment? Uh, I think it, well, it was a massive adjustment, but I think I think we did. So we did two. I'm trying to think. We did two roadside attractions with them. I think, and then we mm-hmm. did. Then we did a couple. Then we did one and a half tour. We did. Um, I'm trouble at the hen house. We did that complete national tour with them and some dick gigs in the states as well. Um, okay. After a while, I think we were getting pretty good at good at it. And honestly, after those arena tours, when we ended up playing like really kind of large theaters on our own, um, that was less bewildering because we'd done those shows with the hip. We were able oh, to use like the size of the room um, yeah. a lot, a lot more. So it was, it, it proved it. I, I don't know if we really necessarily got there with our, with our shows with the hip in terms of commanding the stage and being really good on a big stage, but we certainly got good on it after a while because have, because we'd done those shows. Was it ever an issue for you about like that whole tr- hooligan tragically hip reputation thing that you mentioned with Lenoir. Like, did you guys ever feel that like people just wanted to see the goddamn tragically hip and like, was that ever a thing or was it, was it pretty cool for you guys? Well, day for night, the hip day for night was, is a strange, is a, uh, it really, um, you know, a couple of sharp rights and a couple of sharp, le- sharp lefts with that, with that record mm-hmm. that I think, I think um, separated the wheat from the chaff when it came to their fans. A lot of people, okay. A lot of people left them, and new people joined them because they became more and more interesting. And so, by right. the time we toured with them, it was a much more genteel um, crowd and a lot more cool. accepting. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. It was good timing for sure. Uh, and we were playing to. It was good. I, we were playing to crowds that were interested in, and wanted to be there. I think largely. So that's what so, I remember when I saw the tour in in Vancouver. It was like you guys were warmly received. Yeah. So you mentioned whale music and I, I'd just like to talk about that. Cause that was like a big, that was a big deal. There was a, so the way I understand it is you made the record, then the movie comes out and, and then the soundtrack whale music comes out. Is that yes. so? Okay. So how does, how did that all happen? Way too many things called whale music, unfortunately, in our, in our <laughs> catalog. We made the, so we made, well, we, we showed, we showed up to make whale music at Reaction Studios on McGee Avenue in Toronto in the East End. Mm-hmm. And the first thing Michael Phillip, our producer, did was um, he played us. He had just recorded Gordon Brennick, Brennick Ladies Gordon, and and then in the and in the interim he'd recorded Change of Heart Smile. So he played us those two records before we played a single note. Which and I don't know whether this was you know, a psychological ploy on his, his mm-hmm. part. But we heard those records and thought we can't possibly make a record as good as these two. Um, mm-hmm. they, and they are both, I think, ex- brilliant records. And so we were really kind of daunted, you know, and those, neither of those records had come out yet. And we're like, fuck, where do we slot in? Like these <laughs> records are going to come up. People are going to love them. And then, we're gonna, you know, so um, 
it was an, you really set the, set the bar for us. And the first track after we set up hearing those records, the first track we did was dope fiends and booze hounds, which ended up being the last song on that record. So we did that. And once we kind of got that song in the can, we kind of thought, okay, well maybe we kind of have a chance here of making something that's interesting. And there was, you know, there was a little bit of pressure in terms of because Melville had been so well received. We we're like, oh, what do we yeah. do? Let's, you know, let's not just try to make like a lesser version of Melville. Let's really try to kind of move it out a little bit. And, th- and on this record, we had Dave Allen, violin player, doing a lot more playing with us and uh, Louis Melville okay. uh, on pedal steel and Chris Brown on piano. So we had a bit of an expanded kind of, you know, coterie of, of, of musicians. And, um, and so we just thought, let's just try to build it a little bit bigger and let's not worry about, you know, if we have four, 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 five, four, seven minute songs, let's just try to, you know, try to figure, figure that out. It took, we took a lot longer on this one too, than we did the last one. I think, you know, maybe a month and a half or whatever to really make sure we got it right. And, and then, you Um, know, it's like making a record. You never know, right? You never know. You never know. Yeah. You mentioned pedal steel and, and, and partly because I'm a pedal steel player, I find that intriguing because uh, country music has sort of like popped its head into your worlds yep. a little bit. Like you guys have never been uh, playing country songs exactly, but like it's definitely an influence. I can hear it in 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 the writing and and, in, and sometimes the instrumentation and the performance. Um, was that like a, a an influence for all of you or was there one of you more in particular that, that dug country music? It's funny. I think it's a bit of a... Hmm. I think it's maybe a bit more of a, I hate to use this term, but it's a bit more of kind of almost a spiritual influence with us uh-huh. when it comes to country music. We, um, Tim and I, Tim Bestley and I, um, we, um, uh, we were in a club one night, we were in the Rivoli and, um, yeah. Tim, I think more than anyone else had, um, was into country music. He was into it before, before me or Martin or, um, yeah, I love country music. And then he said, you know, in, in the club one night, he said, I want to drive to Nashville, like <laughs> tomorrow. And I was like, like now. I got a car, basically. It's like, sure, <laughs> doing nothing. I got no job, whatever. So we, um, <laughs> we, we drove to Nashville and uh, uh, had a great time. Just, you know, drop kick me Jesus through the goalposts of life. That guy, <laughs> I don't remember his name. Yeah. We met him at a bar. He, he claimed to have written that song. <laughs> I don't know if he did, Okay, but um, mm-hmm. anyways, he went to hey, some, you never know, man. You never know. Went to a couple of the cinder block clubs, saw some bluegrass, uh, went to the country, country music hall of fame, went to Ernest Tubbs, had a, had a great time. And then we were last night in Nashville. We were like, Hey, we should go to Georgia. It's like, yeah, we're here. Let's go to Georgia. So we drove to Athens. Yeah. Uh, Jason and the Scorchers play at the 60 Watt Club. Um, Amazing. Had a great time. And then, all right, time to turn the car around to drive home. And as we were uh, heading north, you know, you start to hear that sound from under the hood that doesn't sound great, but it's probably going to yep. be okay. And it's never okay. <laughs> And so we ended up stopping in this town called Clarksville and it was Sunday night, pulled into a parking lot in Clarksville and, uh, you know, the cherry tops come into the parking lot behind us. We're like, well, where does, what's going to happen now? Guy gets out of the cop car and says, uh, a lovely guy, 
we tell him the whole story. He's like, well, listen, it's Sunday night. Nobody's going to fix your car now, but, uh, but Har- Harvey's place motel up the road is open. Uh, I'm sure he's got a, uh, got rooms for you guys. I'll take you over there. So, um, he got in the back of the cop car again, not really <laughs> sure how this is all going to play out. Uh, yeah. knocks on the door, uh, the, of the motel guy comes in his, uh, pajamas and says, I'll meet in the hotel in the motel office. We go to the motel office. He turns on the lights and all around the office of this motel in Clarksville, Georgia are photos of hockey players. Really? And I'm You've like, come to the right place. <laughs> right. So I'm like, that's Kurt Bennett. That's Harvey Bennett. I knew them from my seventies hockey obsession. Kurt Bennett played for Atlanta. Harvey jr. Played for Philly. And, oh and this old man is in front of us. And we were like, so it turns out Harvey Bennett from Saskatchewan. He uh, played for the Providence Reds. He played a lot of minor hockey. He had a cup of coffee with the Bruins. His son played for the Atlanta uh, Flames. Kurt, yeah. Harvey did some scouting. He retired to Clarksville and opened this motel. So when he Holy found shit. out, we, yeah, I know. So when he found out that we were from Toronto, he was like, oh, you know, he took that was beautifully took care of us, gave us motel room, set <laughs> us in the morning, fixed our car for us. And that oh honestly, my God. like, honestly, Steve, that was the moment I thought, oh, like hockey exists in other places. So that's what, that's what led me to like travel to, to play the game and to, led to uh-huh. Tropic of Hockey and it led to the documentaries. And it was all because of that, Tim thinking, Hey, asking, Hey, you want to go to Nashville? It's like, sure. So, and it also reminded me too, it's like you, when you travel, like you never know, like you're putting <laughs> your, you're giving yourself a possibility to like intersect with other lives, you know, with absolutely. Humans. Yeah. You would never intersect it if you hadn't, you know, left the front door. So, um, so yeah. And then that whole trip, I remember we listened to like Doc Watson and, um, Chet Atkins and you got into it. Merle Travis and yeah. And then so, so like, you know, self-serve gas station isn't really a country song, but it kind of is. And I think, yeah. I think you just take that kind of basic, like that foundation of, mm-hmm. of country and then you can apply it in so many different ways too. So totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think you guys did that really interestingly with whale music. How did, I don't understand. Like how did that evolve into being tied into the film and doing the soundtrack to the film? What was like, what was the process? For oh, that? that's right. So, um, Paul Corrington. So we named the album after Paul's book and became friends with Paul. Paul said, they're making a movie based on the novel. They need a band and need a set of musicians. I'll try to convince the producers and the director to hire you guys. Ah. Paul worked on them for quite a while before they finally saw it. The director uh, finally decided it would be a good idea to have us. And then, they, then so then we set about writing um, a series of songs based on the novel. But we had to write them before the film was shot because they had to shoot to, to the music. Right. So we really wrote we really wrote music for the film based not on the film, but rather based on the book. So that was interesting. And that was Claire kind of all came out of that because that's a song that exists in the novel. And we were assigned to kind of write this pop song. And frankly, like yeah. if we hadn't been assigned to write a pop song that way, we yeah. might never have. So um, yeah, and then so the soundtrack kind of came out after that. So that's the, that's the timeline of those three projects. Is Torque Torque, is that on, that's on the soundtrack, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, so... Um, I mean, at that, like with songs like that, it's almost like you're, you're, 
you're going for a Beach Boys kind of thing, like it's mm-hmm. sort of produced in that way and, and the vocal arrangements are kind of like that. Um, was that something that was consciously, you know, because it's, it's sort of like vaguely a, a Brian Wilson kind of scenario too with the story, right? Well, um, yeah. It was, it was interesting, like, because there was a lot of that Brian Wilson homage stuff happening in pop music at the time, you know, whether it's like High Llamas or or Dan Brick, like there were always, there were a lot of people that were doing, doing Brian Wilson stuff and influenced by Brian Wilson. And we thought it would be really fun, you know, instead of taking kind of like the, that, that sort of, uh, you know, that, that artful, um, uh, creative, um, studio, uh, harmonic genius of Brian Wilson, mm-hmm. we thought it'd be fun to just like, instead of paying tribute to Brian in that way, let's, we thought we'd just pay tribute to like, the beach boys by writing just like kind of a goofy song about a car. Right. So that's how we would kind of tip our hat. Um, and the, 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 yeah. And that song is in the book as well. So that's another, and that was just another assignment, right? Like write a song that sounds like, yeah. And that was super fun. And that was actually a big moment for us because we we realized, ah, you can get paid to do something like crazy or something wild. You can do, (laughs) you get paid to do, to be, to be creative and to be inventive. The soundtrack album was recorded before the movie was made. It, yep, all the music. Yep, the album wasn't released, but it, the, all the soundtrack was recorded before the movie was made. Yep, crazy, and it's uh, largely instrumental, although not completely. Like, how how was working in the instrumental idiom for for you? Was that like super weird, or like had had you thought about it before? Or like, how did you approach it? Well, like a lot of the songs have uh, our songs previously had sort of long instrumental passages. So yeah. yeah, it wasn't it wasn't weird at all. It was actually not was exciting. We were we were thrilled to do it. That seems to kind of bleed into the into the group of seven recording as well. Um, as far as like approaching a concept and composing a bunch of instrumental music based on the concept. Um, tell me a little bit about that project. Yeah, that was one right after another. So we were in three things actually. I'm trying to get my timeline straight, but. Yeah, so so we were recording, we were recording songs. We were recording demoing the whale music soundtrack um, okay. it, during the day at the gas station studios in Liberty Village, which were run by Don Kerr and Dale Morningstar. We were doing that okay. today, and in the evening, we were rehearsing with Jane Sibbery for an ill-fated project with her. We were really, yeah, we were we were we were we were kind of enlisted to be her, her backing band. We were going to be her backing band for, for an album and a tour. Oh. And so we would spend, uh, I've got my, I've got my um, days mixed up. We would do in the afternoon. We would work with Jane and in the evening. We would work on the world music soundtrack. And these are wonderful, like wonderfully full, really interesting days. Um, you know, doing both of those things. Jane's thing didn't work out at all. Why? There was no zero. Well, there was, um, because I think we came at a point in Jane's creative career where she was working way more with machines oh, and she okay. was working more in, in on her own and she couldn't quite, she couldn't quite understand or um, relate to like this live rock band thing. Right. Like, right. you know, right. she wanted it a lot more controlled and we couldn't offer that to her. We, and we came to the project like, Oh, it's great. We're going to bust free. We're going to take Jane's songs and we're just going to like, yeah, bring it bring them out into this really exciting realm of rock music, not, not her vibe. And so that, that didn't work, but, but, but the, the soundtrack stuff did. And then 
literally like, yeah, I would say a year, maybe not a year, maybe even six to eight months right after that, we started the group, the group of seven project. And that was a, that was another commission by uh, the national gallery of Canada for the 75th anniversary of the group of seven. They, uh, they wanted to, yeah, they wanted somebody to write. Again, we came, we went from writing songs based on a novel to writing songs about, about a series of paintings. So it was really nice to be able to kind of think laterally that way and, and, and approach yeah. writing in a different way. So did that literally come in as a call from the National Gallery yeah. just saying, hey, yeah. cool. Yeah. And, and, and what Maybe. sort of parameters did you have? Uh, yeah, to their credit, we really had no parameters, which was kind cool. of a good, good and a bad thing, right? And in fact, right. we didn't really have much of a shape to the project until Don Kerr, who joined the band yeah. after Dave had left us, Don said, I've got an old friend who I think knew the group of seven and he lives in Victoria and he's been a, a vegetarian since like 1927 or whatever. And that was Winchell Price. So Don recorded okay. um, an interview, a long interview yeah. uh, with Winchell. And she was like, what if we had his recollection separating the, um, the music? And that's when it all kind of really made sense. And um, yeah, we had Kevin Hearn with us. Uh, performing as well and he was great he he wrote a lot for us also and um yeah and then that's yeah so that's that was the sort of nature of that and then it was really written entirely for a performance it wasn't written for record uh the idea would be we would perform the music um uh at the national gallery theater once and um and that would be that was that what be. the actual commission was was to like write music yep. and perform it exactly okay. yeah and then yeah. we did the thing and we were like we'd be kind of goose to not actually record this thing so even though there was a bit of discussion in the band about whether we were you know uh you know defaulting on the assignment you know because really? i kind of do well i sort of we sort of like the idea of write it, play it once, and then it's gone. But, um, but I think I there was that. a certain a sense of pride or, uh, uh, over the achievement. And then, and so we, so we ended up making, making a record of it and we've since remounted it too. So the show, how did you decide on the visual aspect? Like which paintings were going to be, uh, you know, used as inspiration and part of the show and all that? Like how did that all get put together? Yeah. We had a friend, Carol Larson, who's a, um, a documentary editor, film editor, who, um, who she, uh, she's a friend of Tim's and she came in and, and did all of that for us the first time. Okay. Yeah. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about, um, going into like solo recording and doing the Bedini band stuff. Um, that must be a, obviously a totally different experience than, than having a, a band full of dudes that you've played with for 25 years, although it is, uh, some of the same guys from the Rio, from the Rio statics, yep. obviously, but, um, how was that different for you? Like as approaching it artistically? than doing a, another real statics record. Yeah, it's different when you have your own band because a, a lot more is required of you, I think. And um, you certainly, you know, if I'd sang three or four songs on a Rio's record, you know, here I'm doing the entire thing. So that forced, forced me to certainly become a little bit better at that and to, yeah. you know, learn a little bit more about singing and being able to certainly carry a show that way. Um, t- it taught me a lot about being a, being a band leader and I guess an entertainer. Um, so, so, but, but yeah, no. And I also think, but I also think the guys in the band, Paul and Doug, especially Paul Linklater, Doug Friesen are, are, are people that, you know, whose musical sensibility is in the same place as, as the Rios. And, yeah. you know, Paul, uh, Paul back in the early days in the early nineties, when Paul was literally a 
gee, I want to say, I don't want to say preteen because I think he was a little bit older than that. But when he, when he was in his mid teens, he would write the real statics letters. He grew up in justice, Manitoba, <laughs> which is a small, small town outside of Brandon. And, and Paul would write us letters and I would write them back and we were pen pals and yeah. he would send us cassettes that his band would make. And yeah. uh, when my wife and I, when I had to go to Italy, when I went to Italy to write my third book, Baseballissimo, for six months, I said to Paul, I wrote him, and a letter came to him on the farm, and I said in that letter, why don't you come and live in my house in Toronto while I'm away? <laughs> like, they, he, you know, they'd been to Brand, I don't think they'd been, he'd never, certainly never been west of, or east of, I think. And um, he was like, great, so him and Donna Linklater, um, his wife, uh, came to Toronto, uh, lived in our home, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, so I remember going to Union Station, picking them up on the train that I come in from Winnipeg with all of their stuff, and you know, set them up here, and then we well, we went to Italy, and, and and we came back, and they've never left the city since then, and so so we've been really close um, for a long time, and, and um, so and it really after the Rios broke up that first time, it was Don who kind of said like you know let's just start another band. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know. You know, I was pretty tender then. And I, you know, about what I wanted to do and, you know, d- distraught partly about, about the Rios and it ending and wondering where it was all going to lead. And what do you do now? You know? And, um, and Dom was like, let's just start another band. You got a lot of songs. So I don't really owe it to, to, to Don. And I owe it a lot to Doug and Paul, obviously as well, to the fact that, you know, they kind of, you know, um, kicked my sorry ass. Was it weird not having the same group of people to like bounce stuff off, or did you find that kind of refreshing? It, in the beginning, it was all terrifically weird. Yeah, and you end up asking yourself all of those questions. You know, are you good enough without these other guys? Yeah. Um, you know, where does it all lead from here? Like, it's it's really it's tough to go. I don't. I would never really want to go through it again. You know, you're so conscious of your legacy. And, yeah, and. Um, worrying about it, it, it inevitably it's all going to be measured against what you've done before right of course and so to figure in your own head too and you live with it and it wasn't you know even the fact that i'm really proud of the records we made and the shows we did and they were great guys they are great guys and it's great in fact next week i go to Yellowknife with them we do we do a handful of shows a year and one of them is for hockey day in canada oh, cool. and we're up to, up in Yellowknife. so so it's great and you know everything's fine but yeah those were Sometimes I probably wasn't at my best as a person, and while all that's happening too, like our kids were born, so yeah, got to be a good dad and all that kind of stuff. So, and it was really, you know, it was it was really really tough. But I was glad that they were there for me to be good friends and good bandmates. That's for sure. Maybe we could just end end by telling me a bit about um, like the 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 recent record here, come the wolves. Um, just like a little bit about the experience, about you know how how you guys decided to come back together and what the process was like and maybe if there was any differences to how you approached making the record and, and whether, whether there was any, you know, motives aside from just making more awesome music together or, or any of that kind of thing. Yeah. I think we wanted to, um, we were conscious of like making a record that didn't just sound like, um, you know, uh, a version of the band that was, not quite as good as what it used to be, but just, but, <laughs> yeah. but still a, a band. Like we wanted to, you know, we just wanted the record to really sound like it could live in 
2019-2020 as yeah. opposed to just kind of lesser more mature versions of what we'd done before and so we really yeah. really really pushed each other and we pushed the songs on frankly to like get to a place that could where they could sort of stand on their own and Hugh Marsh and Kevin Hearn were both large parts of that record. Kevin probably, uh, rather Hugh probably more than, than Kevin. Just oh, yeah. that Hugh was there all, at all times with us through the songwriting process. He's so great, man. And, oh my God. Like, I shake my head. And he's such an amazing dude, too. He's such a great dude. And, yeah. and so unpretentious and so generous with his genius, really. And, and so it was nice to have him... And with Hugh, you can also, like, there's a violin line at the beginning of ACDC on the stereo where it's just like, yeah. can, Hugh, can you do this? Like, and I would sing this ridiculously absurd line and, like, within 10 seconds, <laughs> he's able to do it. And I think because those guys are a big part of the band now and part of the record, the band does kind of exist as a different entity anyways. Um, but, um, yeah, it was... Um, yeah. Whose idea was it in the first place to get together and make a record? It had been so. It had been a number of years. Like, what was the impetus? We did those um, music inspired by the group of seven shows at the Art Gallery of Ontario with that okay. lineup at three oh. of those shows, and um, yeah, we um, they were pretty pretty great, and um, it all came across really well, and and that was, you know, Don was like, I can't, I can't do it. Like, I can't make a record with you guys because I'm busy, but you should just ask Dave to do it. And uh -huh. so then, you know, we hadn't really, we didn't, we hadn't played with Dave for decades, you know, and um, yeah, a long time. And uh, so we did some shows at the Horseshoe with Dave. And of course, um, it, we left, we picked up where we left off with him and it was, it was uh -huh. a great joy. And um, David had, not that this really has anything to do with it, but it might Dave had had a uh, double sudden double bypass surgery. His oh, hands, uh, his arms became numb on a weight cycling to see Stevie wonder at the air Canada center. And he thought, well, that's weird. And then he sat down and they went away. His arms were fine. And then when he woke up the next morning, both of his arms were numb. Um, so he went to the doctor and the doctor said, we have to get you to a cardiologist right away. And the cardiologist um, checked his heart and realized that he needed to go under the knife uh, stat. Oh, God. So, um, and it was really what, what um, uh, the, 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 not the defect, but the, the issue with his heart was the same thing that actually had killed his dad. So they caught it. And Dave mm -hmm. had six, seven months of recovery. And when he mm -hmm. kind of came out of that, again, I don't know if this is really necessarily in, impacted his, his um, way of thinking, but it was only too short, like not to yeah. at least attempt to kind of come to terms with, you know, people with whom you were close. And, um, and it took me years too to kind of really come around to that. And so, we reached out to Dave and and then, and then it all had, you guys had a falling out or something well, in the day. Yeah, sure. The bad end, the band ended badly after he left. Yeah. And, um, yeah, our, our departure was thorny. It wasn't, it wasn't great. And, right. um, yeah. And then, and then, so we were right now, we were close for a long time and now we're right back. Like, you know, that's awesome. It reminds me of those. Yeah. The early days. So, yeah. So, so that, so that, I think that informed a lot of the process of making the record too, kind of a real celebration of friendship.
And what does the future hold for the Rio Statics? Like, are you going to make more records and tour and stuff? Or is it just like a one-off kind of thing? Or what's the scoop? I mean, I hope so. Like, we um, we just finished eight dates that we, we did in December here uh, in Southern Ontario. And we have, we're booking shows now for the spring and the summertime. Um, oh, you are? Cool. Yeah. So we're going to keep keep rolling. And um, I'd love to make it. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, shit, four songwriters, we've got the tunes. you know like do you you all still feel like going out on the road and doing that whole thing or is has that novelty worn off i think we're going to be really deliberate in terms of the steps we take yeah um but we do have like a bit of a van tour booked for um 2020 all right so um yeah so we'll see how that goes uh you know uh, Come and make your Nashville debut. Oh, no, it'd be great. It'd be so great <laughs> to be there. I know. Totally. You never know. It's possible. Okay. Well, thanks, man. Uh, this has been great to talk to you and get oh, some great. total Canadiana down here. I like it. I love it. My pleasure. No, great. That was great. Great to talk to you, too, Steve. Uh, let me know if you need anything else. And uh, let me know when you're coming to town next day. Eh? If you get up here. I will. Yeah. Uh, you bet. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, that was my conversation with Dave Bedini. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for calling in. Please continue to do it. We'll see you next week for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over and out. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.